Jess Wilbur is a graduate of Oberlin, where she double majored in environmental studies and East Asian studies. She's been working with Citizens Climate Lobby since freshman year, helping to pioneer programs for students in higher education. Among the first members of the Campus Leaders Program, empowering students to become climate advocates and organizers, she founded Oberlin's CCL chapter, helping create a climate movement on campus. As the first Great Lakes Regional Fellow, she managed students and educators engaged in climate advocacy, coordinating research and projects with education, diversity, and international teams. She's a musician, poet, certified mediator, and world-ranked equestrian. Jess Wilbur, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So just tell us this wonderful nonpartisan organization, Citizens Climate Lobby, how did you come to it? Just tell us a little bit more about it, how people can get involved. Yeah, definitely. So when I was in high school, I recognized that climate change was going to be the largest problem facing my generation and future generations. And I couldn't help but feel like there was nothing I could do in the face of such an impending problem. So I was actively looking at different organizations that I could become involved with that would help me develop the skills and knowledge I needed to be an effective climate advocate and really advocate for the change that I wanted to see in terms of climate policy. I didn't have much luck during high school, and so I started to feel really alienated and helpless once again. But then in my freshman year of college, our student sustainability director actually got an email from, at the time, higher education coordinator Clara Fang at Citizens Climate Lobby. And she was looking for students who would be interested in helping her to pioneer a campus leader program, which would basically give students the skills and knowledge they needed to become effective climate advocates. So since that mission was exactly in line with what I was looking for and going on the website and researching Citizens Climate Lobby, I found that all of the organization's values of optimism, of integrity, of building relationships based on kindness and respect, and most importantly, nonpartisanship, those were all of the values that I hold most dear as well. So it seemed like the perfect fit for me, and I decided to jump in and start a chapter at my college, Oberlin College. And now if you speak about chapters, there's quite a few chapters. Just tell us, where are you? Currently, we have a total of 611 chapters. The majority of our groups are in the U.S. and Canada, but we also have chapters in Africa, Asia, Europe, Latin America, and Oceania. It's so impressive. And going to some of the key things that you focus on, the Carbon Dividend Act, just tell us about that. Yeah, definitely. Honestly, this bill is a long time coming for a lot of CCL volunteers. We've basically been advocating for the same type of policy for over a decade, and we support it because the policy will help drive down American carbon emissions by at least 40% in the next 12 years if it were to get implemented this year. And it would also help unleash American technology, innovation, and ingenuity and support a more just transition to a greener economy. And most importantly, it is a bipartisan-backed piece of legislation. As I said before, CCL is a very nonpartisan organization, and we recognize that a viable climate change 
solution with such a divided political climate in the U.S. will have to be bipartisan in order to be lasting. In terms of the specifics of the bill, how it works is first with the implementation of a carbon fee. So the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act puts a fee on fossil fuels like coal, oil, and gas, and it starts low, growing over time. So it will help drive down the carbon pollution because energy companies, industries, and consumers will move toward cleaner, cheaper options, which will inevitably be that green energy. So the next portion is the carbon dividend. The money collected from the carbon fee is allocated in equal shares every month to the American people to spend as they see fit. Program costs are paid from the fees, but they're incredibly minimal portion of the actual fee that gets collected. So the government really doesn't keep any of the money for itself. This means that low and middle income families will earn enough to break even, if not even earn more than they need to offset the economic burden of a carbon tax. The third portion is the border carbon adjustment. So in order to protect U.S. manufacturers and jobs, imported goods will be assessed or will have assessed a border carbon adjustment. Goods exported from the United States will receive a refund under this policy and goods imported from countries that don't have a similar carbon pricing mechanism in place will actually be more expensive. This will help make sure that American companies can't just outsource the production of their goods and pollute elsewhere. It really makes sure that they stay here and that they're held accountable for the pollution that they're causing. And finally, there is a regulatory adjustment. This policy preserves effective current regulations like auto mileage standards, but it pauses the EPA authority to regulate CO2 and equivalent emissions covered by the fee for the first 10 years after the policy is enacted. If emission targets are not being met after that 10-year period, Congress gives clear direction to the EPA to regulate those emissions once again to meet the targets. So the pause does not impact EPA regulations related to water quality, air quality, health, or other issues. This policy's price on pollution will lower carbon emissions for more than existing and pending EPA regulations. And this regulatory pause is really just to make sure that we're not double regulating anything in the government. I know it's nonpartisan, but how excited are you about this new presidency? I will say that I'm excited about the Biden administration specifically because of his dedication to being a president for all Americans. He is really not interested in adding to the political divide that's been growing in our country. He's really interested in trying to bring us together, trying to implement a sense of normalcy and create an environment for collaboration and for bipartisan work. It's beautifully said. And I love your commitment and your passion. And I see how you're a wonderful educator, young educator, but very clear and concise. And I can imagine that you've brought many along on the way at Oberlin that I know that you're graduated from now. And also just tell us a bit about some of your other projects as you have worked with youth and across the spectrum of ages. Right. So obviously I started in Citizens Climate Lobby as a campus leader, educating students at my college about carbon pricing and climate advocacy at large. 
I moved up to be a regional fellow, which was basically overseeing a network of other student leaders across the Great Lakes and also working with their educators to implement more climate advocacy work in the classroom to really bridge that divide between academia and activism. Then I went on to work with various departments in CCL for internships. So I dabbled a little bit in volunteer education and engagement, in diversity work, in our international outreach team now. But my current part-time job is actually helping to start a new 501c3 nonprofit, which was originally called the All Kendall Residence Climate Initiative. What that organization was hoping to do is to create a model for seniors interested in getting involved in the climate movement to have the access and have the resources that they need for their specific demographic to become more involved and to have the ability to advocate alongside their children and grandchildren, knowing that the future of the climate movement is going to be faces of these young people. So the organization now is changing its name to Senior Stewards Acting for the Environment. And we're really excited to get off the ground. We're still very much in the development stages, but hopefully you'll hear more about our organization soon. I love that concept of stewardship. And in your own personal life, you're also a musician and a poet as well, because I imagine just being informed about the way the world is, it can bring you down. So I love that you have this outlet. Tell us about that because we're also about celebrating the creative process. Yeah, definitely. So when I was in high school, I actually was in a program called School of Rock, which was a really interesting way to teach young people how to play instruments and also how to be engaged in the process of setting up a band, running rehearsals, working on covers of anything from alternative rock to classic rock, then going to perform at a real-life venue in the Chicagoland area. My experience with School of Rock was something that still sticks with me. I mean, it, it taught me a lot about the importance of using music as a positive outlet for the frustrations and the fears that I had about the future. Because I got involved with School of Rock at around the same time that I got interested in climate advocacy. And so it was at that time, as I said earlier, that I was feeling so hopeless. And so music really became that outlet for me. I was also involved in my high school slam poetry team. So we would go to slam events in the city of Chicago, and we actually participated in the world's largest youth poetry festival called Louder Than a Bomb. So yeah, that was another way for me to express my fear and hopelessness about the future. But after getting involved with Citizens Climate Lobby, I found that I, I haven't been quite as engaged with music and poetry because I've had so much time to put into action that was making me feel as though I was making a difference in the world. So I didn't quite need these creative outlets anymore. But knowing that I will always have music and poetry is really reassuring because whenever I am starting to feel hopeless again or I'm hitting a brick wall in the work that I'm doing, I go back to some of the instruments that I have and I'll pick them up and I'll get reacquainted with my favorite songs that I learned in high school. Well, that's beautiful. And it's interesting that you said it's one or the other, how you've channeled your 
artistic spirit to, let's say, something larger outside yourself, this how protecting this earth that we all call home, and how one might take the place of the other, but you can draw on that for solace. My name is Eugene Lee, a rising junior at Johns Hopkins University, majoring in environmental studies and economics. I'm an environmental journalist at One Planet Podcast and the Creative Process. As an international student born and living in Korea, learning about collaborative global organizations like Citizens Climate Lobby is incredibly inspiring for me. I especially found it interesting when later in the interview after this interlude, Jess Wilbur talks about how people feel like their elected officials are inaccessible when the U.S. was actually founded on the principle that its citizens can engage in the governing process and the election of their representatives. I could strongly relate because I also feel like governors in Korea are generally inaccessible. I believe modern societies should be more inclusive of its citizens, especially when it comes to decision-making, because I think real conflicts arise when we are ignorant of what's going on in our society. I'm glad to learn that Citizens' Climate Lobby is greatly contributing to building inclusive societies around the world by providing opportunities for lobbying. Moreover, listening to Jess's experience meeting with her Congress members was very illuminating since I don't know anyone around me who has done this. It made me wonder what it would be like to directly communicate with my Congress members. It seems very intimidating, but I cannot think of a more effective way to learn about how society functions and how we can play a role in it. I wish similar opportunities would launch in Korea too, which I think are highly possible given the small size of the country. It will surely give young students and prospective politicians in Korea a chance to step up and voice their opinions. Now back to the interview. Initially, I think you wanted to get into writing policy. I'm not sure if that's something that's still your yeah. trajectory or not. It's definitely something that I'm still interested in and I hope to go to grad school for sometime down the line. But I think where I'm at right now in using my power as a citizen to lobby my elected officials and then to inspire others to do the same, that's something I'm still continuing to be very energized by. And so I don't think I'm quite ready to make that switch over to being on the the other side of, of that meeting yet. But that is definitely sort of my end goal, is working either in the U.S. or internationally to write these climate policies and to make sure that the policies that are being written are not just looking at what could benefit the U.S. and other major economic powers in terms of driving down emissions and making them more energy efficient economies, but also protecting the developing countries that are hit the hardest by climate change, but are contributing the least to it. So I really want to make sure that any policies that get written or that are negotiated upon moving forward are the sorts of policies that really advocate for and help support sustainable development within countries that are being hit the hardest and are contributing the least. I don't know if it's a bit personal, but do you have a bit of a street poetry, personal poetry or song or something relating to your appreciation of the natural world? 
I do. But I do have to say a lot of the poetry that I wrote in high school related to the natural world is also very much tied into my queer identity and trying to find acceptance within my home community and also trying to figure out how the perceptions that still exist of queer identities being something that is quote unquote unnatural, how my queer identity then fits into the natural world and is something that is part of nature and is not anything that I should be ashamed of. So I would love to share that with you, but they are very deeply personal. And at a time in my life where I'm still struggling with my identity, I don't know that I'm quite ready to share them. Excuse me for asking. I just thought with your passion, I would love to hear it in your poetry or music. You know what? Now that I think about it, I do have one that I think I would be willing to read. So this is a poem that I actually wrote my freshman year of college at Oberlin. It was a reflection on how I still did not quite feel accepted as a queer individual in my hometown, but was starting to feel a little bit more accepted in my new environment at Oberlin College. And the reason why I'm choosing to read this one to you is because I do implement a lot of imagery on coral reefs and oceans. The title of this poem is Lilac. Raised upon coral reefs bathed in lilac waters, I emerged from the temperate ocean and almost immediately forgot how to swim. I threw myself back into the pool more times than I can count, hoping I'd remember how to keep myself afloat. Each time, however, I nearly drowned and was painfully reminded that I am permanently displaced from who I once was. They say I've evolved for the best, grown more apt to the environment to which I've immigrated, the environment that's made me struggle to shape my identity, the environment that's made me question whether parts of my identity are even acceptable to hold on to. I couldn't allow myself to agree. The moment no one was watching, I returned to my coral reef, wanting to prove myself wrong, wanting to prove them wrong. But upon viewing the decomposing remains of my birthplace, I realized that part of me died when I first surfaced. It was the innocence that kept me ignorant of their insincerity, unaware of their unwelcoming aloofness, and blind to their bewitching beliefs. I never knew how much I'd crave someone else's approval. But then again, I never dreamed that their disapproval would damn me to disapprove of myself. After all, why would I need buoyancy when their intent was to beat me to the ground? Why would I need a gentle ripple encasing my movements when they'd only turn them into tsunami waves? Why would I need a surface undulating and oscillating when all they wanted is a semblance of stability and certainty? It's ironic how I'd give anything now to feel that drowning sensation again. At least then I'd feel something. At least then my body wouldn't be dry and shriveled and bitter from too much exposure to the sun. At least I'd have something more in my lungs than explanations of self-loathing and bitterness and regret. At least then the last thing I'd witness would be lilac rather than shadow and monochrome and blackness. There's so many lines in that, so many images that you can read them again and understand a different 
have a different meaning and the beauty of that. And it also, there's so many things that one could take out of it. But one thing is when you start to speak about insincerity, and I think it takes a courageous spirit to be sincere. You know, people try to be aloof or these postures or whatever, but sincerity takes great courage. I see that in you. And then it just reminds me about feeling how nature is a, a companion, So often when we go out into nature, we have these really deep conversations with ourselves. Yeah, there is something about spending time in the natural world that is so energizing. The idea that the natural world is degrading before our eyes. And there are so many areas in the U.S. alone that are irreversibly damaged from the way that my parents once viewed them. For example, I recently went to the Indiana Dunes and my mom and dad didn't really recognize a lot of the scenery that they saw in front of them. And I also went to a state park called Starved Rock in Illinois this past summer and it was the same thing. My parents didn't really recognize the scenery because the water level was so much lower and there were so many fewer trees than there had been in the past. And so the idea that these places that give us so much energy and that give us so much life are being killed and taken away by us is really terrifying. And is your family also involved in trying to do what they can to reverse climate change? They're actually not. Both of my parents are doctors and they have been seeing a lot of COVID patients recently. But I think that The reason why I got into advocacy work and I became so concerned about how climate change affects specifically vulnerable communities is because I saw how hard my parents worked for the good of other people growing up. There would be so many days where they would spend more time with their patients than they would with me because they recognized how important it was for them to be seeing their patients, for them to be there, like walking them through everything that was going on with their health and walking them through all of the things that they could do to improve their health and the potential procedures that they might need to improve their health. And so just knowing how dedicated my parents were to other people's lives made me want to do the same thing. I just ended up applying it in a different sector. Well, that's wonderful. They must be so proud of you. And in seeing a lot of COVID patients, it's not really unrelated. This is also climate related. Communicable diseases like COVID-19 are going to be so much more common as the effects of climate change worsen since sea level rise is really going to push us into living closer together, which means it'll be so much easier for epidemics to start and become a pandemic, like what happened with the COVID-19 virus starting in Wuhan and then spreading outwards all across the globe. And so it's really important that we address climate change, not just from a standpoint of protecting the natural world or protecting endangered species, but also for protecting ourselves than our own health. I've been so inspired by you in this conversation, and I feel that so many can learn from you and your dedication and commitment. And we've discussed it a lot, but as you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving for your generation and the next, what would you like to tell people about how they can get involved and what they should cherish about this natural world? I think the first thing in terms of getting involved, I want people to remember that at least in the U.S., we have a democracy for a reason. 
it's supposed to be us regular citizens getting involved in the political process and holding our elected officials accountable for the work that they're doing because they are supposed to be working for us. Unfortunately, we haven't been seeing that a lot in the past few decades. We haven't been seeing this commitment to our health and our safety and the ability for our younger generations to have a fair fighting chance at a long life. It's our responsibility now to hold our elected officials accountable, to get engaged in the democratic process, to learn how to build relationships with our elected officials. And I was just some random kid from like the suburbs of Chicago. And I've been able to meet with my members of Congress multiple times and to really voice what I wanted to say. And I've been able to make weekly phone calls and emails checking in on my members of Congress from those meetings that I've had with them. I want to help people understand that there are resources where they can learn to do the same. And Citizens Climate Lobby is one of the many organizations hoping to do that. If you don't find that your core values quite match up with Citizens Climate Lobby. There are so many other organizations in the environmental movement, in the political movement in the U.S. that will help you get involved and will help you build these same skills so that you too can feel as though your voice matters again. Looking more globally, I, I, I realize that I'm tailoring a lot of this conversation to my fellow citizens in the U.S., but part of that is just because I'm so re-energized from the transition to the Biden administration. And I want other people to feel that same energy and to get involved in the democratic process again. Now that we have somebody in the White House and so many people in Congress that want to hear from us and that want to work with us to implement effective climate policies. But again, thinking more globally, what I want people to remember is that Pollution does not have borders, right? Climate change does not know borders. This is something that is affecting us on a global level. And so even if you are living in a place that is not actively seeing the effects of climate change, it does not mean that it's not being felt elsewhere within your country or elsewhere within the continent that you live on. We are a global community and the actions that we and that our larger country has will have consequences on everybody else in this global community. It's just so moving. And in terms of your dealing with Congress, tell us a bit more about that, because I think people find that mysterious. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing, right? So many people feel like their elected officials are inaccessible. When this country was supposedly founded on the ability of the citizens to be involved in the governing process and to choose who was going to be working for them and then hold those people accountable for the work that they were doing. So what Citizens Climate Lobby does is two to three times a year actually help all of its volunteers that are interested in lobbying be put into at least one lobby meeting with either their member of Congress or one of their senators. When I was living in Ohio, I was in Ohio District 4, and so I met multiple times with the office of Representative Jim Jordan, but I also met with both Ohio Senators Rob Portman and Sherrod Brown. Now that I'm back home in Illinois, I have not had the opportunity yet to lobby with my 
current member of Congress, Sean Kasten, but I'm very much looking forward to getting in touch with his office and building a relationship with him as well. It's really inspiring that I want to reiterate that message doing nothing is catastrophic. Jess has shown the way. The door is open. You just have to cross that boundary. There are many organizations, Citizens Climate Law being one of them, but many local organizations that you can get involved in. So thank you, Jess Wilbur and Citizens Climate Lobby for all you do for your commitment to education, helping create the political will to bring about climate solutions and commitment to nonpartisan pathways to a sustainable future. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast. Thank you so much for having me. One Planet podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producer on this podcast was Eugene Lee. Digital media coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.